Amen. I counted a blessing to be in the house of the Lord this evening. It's fantastic to be uh, back at Little Union once again. I dearly love this church and the people here, and I'm excited to be able to uh, return this year. I'll second the words of Brother Chris and say that, you know, there are many New Year's resolutions that one could make. Um, I've heard quite a few myself. In fact, I was having a conversation uh, with someone yesterday about New Year's resolutions and what those might be for me. But truly, as Brother Chris has already pointed out, there is no higher resolution and no higher calling and no higher purpose than the mark of Christ. It truly is a goal that we ought to be only, not only in yearly pursuit of, but also in daily pursuit of as well. Uh, and on that note, I would like us to turn to Matthew, the 10th chapter, would encourage you, if you do have your Bible this evening, to turn there. We'll be using this as our primary source, primary passage this evening, uh, Lord willing, during our time together. As you're turning there, I'll mention that this is a special time in the book of Matthew, and also a time that we'll read about throughout the other Gospels. We've just received one of the earliest complete listings of the 12 apostles that Christ calls early in his ministry to remain with him up until his death. So these 12 men that we read about early in the 10th chapter of Matthew are the men that will be with Christ really the longest of nearly any followers that Christ was to have on this earth. Now ultimately we'll read that they did desert him on the very eve of his crucifixion. But still, they're important figures in the life and ministry of Christ. And They've gathered together as a complete body for, as what we read in the book of Matthew, the first time. In Jesus, he has taken it upon himself to instruct them in their ministry and in the task to which he has called them. You know, you'll notice in the first several verses, again, that we receive a listing of the 12 disciples. And Jesus tells them to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as they go, preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And wasn't it not? The Son of God was upon the earth. He came fulfilling the law, serving as the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of his people. And he came preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he charged his disciples in this moment, preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, and as he's tasked them with this mission... He decides in his wisdom to remind them of a few things that I think are very pertinent and relevant for us this evening. In verse 16 of Matthew chapter 10, read with me. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given to you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. In verse 21, And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. So Christ, he's delivered the, the, mess, the mission and the responsibility of the disciples in their ministry. 
And this is something that they will fulfill under the close discipleship, uh, the close mentorship of Jesus throughout Jesus' ministry. And this is something that they would also continue beyond his death. You know, as we know, many of them played an instrumental role in the founding of the early church as we read about it throughout the rest of the New Testament. But it's not enough in Christ's mind to simply teach them what they are to do in their ministry. He also has to remind them of the dangers, the the fears, concern, and discouragement that they're going to face as his disciples, as some of the first ministers serving in this capacity in the New Testament. And the message is relevant to us. And as we see throughout the rest of the New Testament, the message do not fear is something that we see very common. We'd say it's, it's... very reasonable to claim that fear is one of the most crippling enemies of the disciple of Christ. You know, we read a parable that Jesus tells multiple times in different situations throughout the Gospels. We see that he tells it in at least one scenario, if not two. You know, it's the parable of the talents. And he's distributing talents, resources, to three servants, uh, which, of course, represent, I believe, us in the church today. And two of those servants use those talents extraordinarily well. They reinvest them, and when their Lord returns, he sees that they have granted him with a 200% return on his original investment. They give him back everything that he trusted to them in the first place and also double that. But the third servant is crippled by fear. We're told that he looks at his Lord and he looks at his circumstances and he's so fearful of what might happen to his Lord's talents that he buries that talent in the ground. You know, and that's that is the scenario, the situation that Jesus understood that the disciples would be confronted with. You know, we read in verse 1 of chapter 10 that he's equipped them with power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And no doubt, he understood that in in the disciples' human nature, that it wouldn't be very long before they grew discouraged by the opposition they would face and would seek to utilize and practice these gifts that he'd given them. You know, it really wasn't that long. So remember, as we mentioned briefly earlier, on the eve of his crucifixion, there's no one left. Jesus hasn't even been delivered in the hands of men and crucified and been declared dead and seen dead by many witnesses yet, and his disciples have grown discouraged already. So he reminds them, I send you forth as sheep among wolves. You know, because in the world, disciples of Christ don't respond to violence with violence or with aggression, to aggression with aggression. They're called to be humble, and they're to serve with meekness, in the face of the, the world's violence and aggression. And that's what Jesus is reminding them of. I have called you as sheep into the midst of wolves. You're to be harmless as doves, but yet wise as serpents. And he says, and also be beware of men. Because Jesus understood that men would plot against the disciples in their ministry just as they plotted against him. We read in John the 18th chapter and the 19th chapter how Jesus is delivered before the council of the Sanhedrin, the high priest, and also Pilate. 
Furthermore, we read in Luke, the 23rd chapter, how he's also brought before Herod. And many times throughout his ministry, he appears before different bodies of people across the land of Israel, and he defends his identity and he defends his ministry before them. And he says, disciples, you will be called to do the same thing. You will be delivered before men, you will be set before councils, and they will challenge your mission. They will challenge your purpose as ministers of Christ, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. You won't read very long in the book of Acts before we see this chilling prophecy fulfilled. The disciples, they're carried before synagogues, and they are scourged in front of many to discourage them from preaching the message of the gospel. And he says, but when they deliver you up, you're to take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given to you in that same hour what you shall speak. You know, we see other men in the same scenario, even throughout the Old Testament. We see Moses, uh, first of all, early in the book of Exodus, specifically in Exodus, the fourth chapter. The Lord charges him as someone who was once a prince of Egypt and was exiled or escaped Egypt because he murdered one of his fellow Egyptians, an Israelite rescued from death in the Nile. He charges him, Moses, I want you to go back to Pharaoh and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And what is Moses' response? Well, Moses' response is that he's ill-equipped, slow of speech and slow of tongue. You know, and the Lord charges him, now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth and shall teach thee what thou shalt say. So the Lord says, there will come a time at which my disciples will be delivered before councils of men and charged with the responsibility of revealing to them the message of the gospel and reaffirming the mission that I've charged them with. And he says, when you go before the councils of men, do not be concerned with what you will say because I will teach you and reveal to you what you will say. Another similar scenario that we can think of is the situation of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is charged with returning to the land of the Israelites and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. And when the Lord charges him with this, Jeremiah, he tells the Lord, who am I to be tasked with this responsibility? He says, I am a child. And the Lord says, say not that you are a child. Why? Because the Lord told him that thou shalt do all that I shall send thee, and whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. You know, Thank God this evening... And historically, in the land in which we live, we haven't been faced with these, ta- with these tasks yet in these situations yet. There is not a day that we get up, and especially on the days that we are to be in the house of the Lord, that we shouldn't thank God for that blessing. But there may easily come a time where we are confronted with this situation which the Lord was describing to the disciples. There may come a time at which the world considers the message of Christ hostile to its agenda and we're delivered up before synagogues and the councils of men the governments of the earth to give account of what we believe and what we teach in the church and the message still rings true today don't be concerned for that situation because the Lord will provide us with the message that we ought to deliver to our persecutors reminded of the words of David in 2nd Samuel chapter 23 where he tells us that the spirit of the Lord spake by me and his word was in my tongue. Even David understood in the Old Testament that the Lord possesses the ability 
to give his children the words to say when they are most needed. And we see that in the situations of the disciples in the New Testament. In the situations where they are confronted with death and persecution, it is then that we see them deliver some of the greatest and most impactful messages of their ministry. You may think about the situation of Stephen. Facing his pending death at the hand of the religious leaders of the day, he delivers, in my opinion, which is not quite relevant in this situation, one of the greatest messages that we read in the entirety of the New Testament. Speaking of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, because it's not in those moments that those men were speaking. It's something that I would often ask of myself. And in the moments where I might perhaps say the greatest things in my humble opinion. That's not me speaking of the things of the things of Scripture. That is the Spirit of God speaking of the things of Scripture. Whenever a minister utters something in the Spirit of God, it's not of him, it's of the Spirit of God. And the same is true when the Lord provides a message and words to his children when they are in the midst of affliction. The Lord speaks through his children to their persecutors. And we're told in this time, brother shall deliver up the brother to death and the father the child. The children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. Paul's reminding the disciples, the life of the disciple of Christ is not often an easy one. Perhaps it's something that we often forget as well. It's certainly something that I forget regularly. We're not persecuted in this day and age as perhaps the disciples were in their time. But he said in these, in these difficult times, in times of persecution, often brother portrays brother, child portrays child, father portrays child, and child betrays their parents. And he says in verse 22, And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. You shall be hated of all men. It's a serious truth to grapple with that there may come a time in the lives of disciples of Christ that they're hated of all men. I'm here to tell you this evening that this is not that time. Tonight you're not hated of all men. I for one love you and for Christ's sake because you're gathered here in the house of the Lord tonight. So today is not the day that you're hated of all men, but there may come a time in which we're faced by the opposition of nearly every conceivable person that we could imagine. We're told, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Now, there's no one that has ever endured or ever will endure with all perfection until the end of their life on this earth other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're hoping to somehow earn eternal deliverance and eternal salvation and our continual perfected perseverance as disciples of Christ, that is a lost hope. It's a lost hope. I'm here to tell you that if someone endures in faith, if someone is blessed to endure in faith, they won't do so in perfection. But if they're blessed in any way to follow in faith under the guidance of Jesus Christ, the Lord, he's delivered them from darkness. He's delivered them from their sins. And it's not of their own merit that they're able to persevere. It's of Christ. We'll read a bit more of this 
um, in the rest of the passage. So don't be too concerned with that verse right now. We'll come back to it. We're told in verse 23, but when we are persecuted, when they persecute you in this city, flee into another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. That is to say, Jesus is reminding the disciples, when you're persecuted in one city, flee into another. When you're persecuted in one country, flee into another. When the agenda of one nation opposes you, flee into another. And the miraculous truths of Christ's statements are that it won't, Christ will return before God's children run out of nations to flee into. When they're persecuted in one and they flee into another, there won't be some sort of refuge, however imperfect that it may be, that they can't flee to before the second and victorious return of Jesus Christ. You know, all men were delivered as sheep in the midst of wolves, will be delivered up into the councils and synagogues of men to be tried for our beliefs. Oftentimes, we may be scourged in their presence. It may seem as if all men are set against us. It may seem as though it's impossible to endure. We may be persecuted to the extent that we must flee into another country. And further still, Jesus says in verse 24, The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? So we as disciples aren't above Christ. We certainly understand that. We also have to understand that Christ was accused of many things during his ministry. One thing that he was repeatedly accused of probably most soundly in Mark the third chapter was that he was of the devil, that he wasn't casting out devils of the father as he said he was casting out devils by the power of the devil himself. You know, and that's when Jesus utters that uh, statement that rings throughout history, even in political history, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Again, I'm paraphrasing this evening because Christ understood that how would I, what purpose would it serve to the devil's cause that I'd be casting out devils in the devil's name? A house divided against this stuff cannot stand. But still, Christ was accused as, as being of the devil, as being of Beelzebub. And he says, child of God, as a disciple of Christ, you're not above me. And if I'm to be called of Beelzebub, certainly you will be as well. You know, that's heralded to be true. We read of Christ's ministry in Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, that he's despised and rejected of men. He's called, all manner, he's called all manner of names. He's accused of all manner of heresies and poorly formed doctrines. Yet we'll be accused of the same thing when the time comes because a servant is not above his master. But still the message remains the same. Fear them not, therefore... For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that it shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. So here's the next principle that Jesus is delivering to the disciples. Don't be ashamed of my gospel. The things that I deliver unto you will not be widely accepted in the world. You know, I'm of the opinion, and also supported by Scripture... If you want to have a conversation on this over black coffee later, I'd be glad to facilitate that. That as times grow darker and as we grow nearer to the second return of Christ, 
those who most faithfully and in the purest manner follow, follow Christ, the number of those people will grow fewer and fewer. And you see that in the life of Christ. As Christ progresses throughout his ministry, many followed him originally because he, what did he do? He went about healing people. He went about turning water to wine. That's a miraculous thing to do. There are some people that followed Christ for some very devious interests. You know, if I had someone that could simply look at a tree and turn it into a piece of lumber, I would want to follow them around the countryside too. And that's what Christ is doing. He's turning water into wine. And people, they go about the countryside seeking him out for healing, for guidance, for wisdom, and also perhaps for some free wine. And Jesus, he looks at them, and we're told in John the second chapter that he doesn't commit himself unto them, for he knew what was in the hearts of man. And as Jesus' ministry matures, as he grows closer and closer to the time in which he would fulfill the will of God and the purpose for which he was called down to this earth and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, as he drew closer to that time, his following got smaller and smaller and smaller because persecution grew heavier and heavier and heavier. And that persecution eventually culminated in his death. You know, so as, as times perhaps grow more difficult, as we're told about even in Matthew, the 24th chapter, in the 25th chapter, as the second coming of the Lord draws nigh, that group of the faithful grows smaller. And he says, fear them not, fear your persecutors not, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. Christ was accused of being of Beelzebub, being of the devil, during the time that he spent upon this earth. But I assure you, there's going to be none with the courage or with the fortitude to stand when he returns victorious for the last time that will say he's above Beelzebub. What are we told that people will say of him when he returns? Elect or non-elect, we're to be told that at the fearsome and awe-inspiring second return of Christ... Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's not going to be anyone that looks at Christ as he splits the sky and says, Oh, it's he that's of Beelzebub. No, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Because it won't be a matter of faith then, it will be a matter of sight. When the Lord returns with judgment and fiery indignation for those caught in their sin and love and an eternity of peace for those that he died for. There's nothing covered in this present time that one day shall not be revealed. There's not going to be anyone that's accusing the Lord of being of the devil when he returns. Or his children aren't going to be confused of whether or not they're followers of Christ anymore. Everything shall be revealed in that time. You know, we're told that in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, that now we know in part. You know, we see through a glass darkly, but then, speaking of in the future, in eternity, we see face to face. For now we know in part, but then we shall know even as also we are known. What I tell you in darkness, this is Jesus, what Jesus tells the disciples in darkness, what I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what you hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. So here's another of the charges to Christ's disciples. When the Lord tells them of the gospel, when he tells them of this message that they're to deliver throughout the world, what he often tells them in secret, they were to proclaim on the housetops. 
I submit to you this evening what you hear in this church. If it's of the Spirit of God and it's the truth of Christ, proclaim it on the housetops. Don't just keep it contained within this church. Don't keep it to yourselves. Don't even keep it amongst each other. It's a blessing to be able to rejoice in truth with fellow saints in Christ. But when you're told something in truth, perhaps even here this evening, perhaps in another time, go and declare it from the housetops. Don't be ashamed of it. Paul, he charges Timothy in the second chapter of the second letter to Timothy to not be ashamed of the gospel of Christ, nor of Christ's prisoner, that is Paul. You know, again, he charges the Roman church in Romans chapter 1, don't be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Once again, because he wants those who read the New Testament, Paul wants those, his disciples to understand that the gospel is not something that we ought to be ashamed of. Christ wanted his disciples to understand the gospel is not something that we ought to be ashamed of. Say for those of you all who often may be revealed some piece of wisdom in the Spirit of God as you, as you delve into the Scriptures, especially those of you all who are blessed with a lifetime of wisdom, if it's truth, please don't keep it to yourselves for the sake of us younger than you all. Proclaim it from the housetops. Proclaim the gospel from the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body. Jesus understood that when we proclaim the message of Christ from the housetops, there may, even a point in our lifetimes, come when those who hate the message of Christ seek to take the lives of all those that would proclaim it. Jesus understood this, I would say, better than anyone in history, the perfect Son of God, Salt on occasion after occasion after occasion to be killed, his life to be taken, the perfect son of God. And he understood that this pattern wouldn't end with his ministry. These men that sought after his life would also seek after the life of his disciples and still even in this present time. But he, still his message is, fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Notice that Christ didn't say, but rather fear them which are able to destroy the soul and cast it into hell. Because there's only one God that is able to take the soul, has the power to take the soul and cast it into hell. That is God, God the Father, God, that Jesus Christ, the, the, the message that he came proclaiming. It's, it's God that Jesus is speaking of here. It's not them. It's not the men of this world that have the ability to take our souls and cast it into hell. That allegiance and that fear and all-inspiring respect belongs to God. We are to fear him that is able to take the soul and cast it and body and cast it into hell. Christ says, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. That is to say, we understand that God the Father has the power to cast body and soul into hell. But praise God, he also has the power to deliver body and soul from hell. And the same God which cares for the sparrows... It would not have one of them fall to the ground without his knowledge, cares for his people, and will deliver them body and soul from hell. 
and says, Fear you not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. So what have we received thus far? Well, if we place ourselves in the position of the apostles, indirectly, of course, we understand that we're not to fear. We're to go about preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the kingdom of God is imminent, that there is an urgency in the message of the kingdom of God, that there is urgent work to be done and at hand, that we are to task ourselves with the responsibility of performing. We may be a sheep in the midst of wolves, but we are not to be fearful of men, even though we may be scourged of them and delivered up into their counsels, even though we may be forced to flee from nation to nation, which is, I'll mention something else that Christ understood. When the Lord comes, when an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him, take Mary and the Christ child and flee to Egypt, that Herod take not the life of, of Jesus. So he was going about seeking out this king of prophecy, this Messiah of prophecy that he heard so much of, Christ, even in his infancy, is taken by Joseph, his mother along with them, and they flee to Egypt until the time of Herod's rage has passed, for lack of a better word. You know, and still Jesus, he's forced many times throughout his ministry to depart into another part of the country as political leaders would seek his life. You know, I also think about Paul. Brother Chris has already mentioned who while he was in the city of Damascus, his life is sought after. And how does he escape? He escapes by a basket. He's lowered down from a window from what we can observe in the, the scripture that we have in a basket to safety. And further still, he's preaching with Barnabas and Iconium. And again, his life is sold out, sought after. And what does he do? Well, he simply goes and he begins to preach the gospel in another place. You couldn't put this guy down. Goodness, he's struck down by the Lord, but nobody else seemed to have been able to do anything with him. Because the second that he was persecuted in one country, he simply went to another. In verse 32, Matthew chapter 10. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Now again, if we felt the need to establish that Christ is not suddenly going to change his mind at the end of all eternity when it comes to his children and decide, well, they did a pretty poor job as my child and reconcile them to eternal damnation in hell, we would. Now I assure you today that the message of Scripture is clear. The Lord understands who his children are. He knows who they are. He died for them on the cross and that work is finished and it is irrevocable, and it is complete. Now, what we're reading of here is something a, little, a tad bit more nuanced related to our discipleship here on this earth. And I'll point out to you all that the words confess and deny, as they're translated in our King James translation of the Bible, I assure you I'm reading from a King James this evening, even though the cover fell off on the way down uh, here to Florida just yesterday, those words confess and deny are words that were used in the legal court of this time when a case would be decided between two uh, individuals who were to inherit a portion of someone's land or a portion of their inheritance. And so essentially what would happen in that time 
is you would have the two contenders who each wanted a portion of a deceased man's land. And the judge would be forced to confess one and deny the other. So we look at one that he decided was the legitimate heir of the deceased individual's property, and he would confess that one. And then the one to which no property was owed, he would deny that one. I would say even in this time, we see this in a sense occurring in heaven. Now, I've never been called up in a vision to heaven, as was John, and it's certainly not going to be recorded, even if I was, in the canon of Scripture. What we do understand about heaven, what we do understand from the message of John and others, is that the Lord, He's communicating with the Father about even His individual children here on this earth. And probably the best clue, that one of the best clues that we received to that is in Romans chapter 8. And we're told that, we know not to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So there is a communication that's occurring between the Spirit of God and the Father on behalf of God's children when they do not know how to pray. And if I could tell you how exactly that looked, I would this evening. That hasn't been revealed to us in this time. And in a similar way, we seem to observe that the Son of God acknowledges his faithful children even in heaven this day. It happens much in the same way that, we'll read about, that we would read about if we were to be present in a courtroom during the time of Jesus. Jesus often confesses his children's name before the Father and also his holy angels. We read about that throughout in other places in the Gospels as well, especially in the book of Romans, and, and references to it are scattered fairly heavily throughout the New Testament. And he acknowledges their faithfulness, and he grants them blessings of discipleship that they experience here on this earth. That's why in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're told that if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him, but if we deny him, he also will deny us. When we deny Christ, there is something, a portion of our fellowship that we're deprived of here, here in this time. Think of Peter who denied Christ as he followed Christ you know, during Christ's ministry. He's asked by multiple people, do you know this Christ man? Weren't you one of his followers? And Peter says, I don't know him. I don't know who this man is. He does it three times. What happens? Just as Jesus prophesied, the cock, the rooster crows, and Peter realizes that he just denied Christ thrice, and what does he do? He goes out, and he weeps bitterly. And at the most crucial moment of Jesus' ministry, Peter is not there. Now we see him sprinting to the Lord's tomb when he hears this rumor that perhaps the Lord has been resurrected, but even at these moments where Jesus' ministry has culminated in this incredible act that would save God's elect people from their sins, Peter doesn't seem to be present. Perhaps he, would fear, he feared that he would have been crucified as well. And in his fear, he denies the Lord. And you and I are often called in the same circumstance today. We are presented with an opportunity to affirm our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge his lordship, and yet we deny him. In that moment, we often find ourselves, as the Apostle Peter did, apart from Jesus, in the dark, weeping bitterly.
You know, on the other hand, we may be confronted with a decision in which we are presented with the opportunity to, again, affirm our allegiance to Christ or deny him. Perhaps we confess his name. Well, in that moment, I think we find ourselves in the situation of Stephen. Perhaps not explicitly. But on the very eve of his death, he's facing his pending death, and he sees the gates of heaven open to receive him. From what we read. And so Jesus, he's charging the disciples. Disciples, when you're presented with the opportunity to affirm your allegiance to me, confess my name. Don't deny it. Because when you confess my name, I will acknowledge yours. When you deny me, you are often denied before my Father. He says in verse 34, Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Really, the, one of the final charges that he delivers to the disciples, the one with which we'll close, reminds the disciples, you must place the kingdom of God as your ultimate priority. You must place the kingdom of God at the top of all your concerns and all the affairs of this life above all else that you experience here in this world. But even so, you know, the kingdom of God and the, the life of the disciple is not necessarily always one of peace. It's a great way to summarize the message that Jesus is delivering to the disciples in this passage. Disciples, when you follow me, your life may not necessarily be one of peace. Perhaps it may. Perhaps it may from some of you all, and I pray that that is the case, and I pray that it is the most peaceful life of discipleship that one may have. But he says, if you truly do these things that I say, if you go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and you preach that the kingdom of God is at hand, you heal the sick, you cleanse the lepers, you raise the dead, you cast out devils, you freely receive and you freely give. You don't accumulate an excess of wealth, and you don't preach for money, but for the sake of the gospel, your life may not be one of peace. You know, he re reiterates this in Luke, the 12th chapter, in a slightly different way and in a similar context. Luke, the 12th chapter, in the 49th verse, he says, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it, are, if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I straightened until it be accomplished? Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on the earth, I tell you nay, but rather division. Christ says, the, mess, the task of the disciple and also Christ's purpose was not one that he necessarily saw generating peace. It probably would have helped the peace of Israel and the land of Israel in that time if Christ hadn't been walking upon the earth. The Pharisees and the Sadducees certainly would agree. You know, we're told that even as the disciples went out from the presence of Jesus, that their message turned the world upside down. 
It was a message which didn't necessarily result in peace, but in some ways, in terms of the world, chaos. Because Jesus, he comes teaching the message of the kingdom of God, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're looking at them, him still proclaiming the Levitical law, and they saw nothing but chaos. And Christ says, reconcile yourself to this reality. Because I did not come bringing a message that would always cause peace on earth. It's a message of peace, but the world often reacts to it violently. Christ even says, my baptism, which of course he's speaking of his death, and also of his life as well, the baptism to which I am called, it's not one of peace. Baptism of fire. He says, shall I pause from my purpose? Shall I pause from fulfilling the will of the Father for the sake of the better peace of earth? No, I'm come to fulfill my purpose. Again, think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father. And the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Often the message of Christ divides even those closest to ourselves. I hope there's never a time, I hope there's never a time where one of my siblings is not a member of Primitive Baptist Church. I hope there's never a time where I'm divided with my parents over something related to the truth or any of my other fellow church members or yoke bearers in Christ. But even if there is, the kingdom of God is still to be placed above those things. You know, when you read this, you read that message and it often seems confusing to us as we read because it seems as if Jesus is teaching us not to care for our families and not to care for those closest to ourselves. There could not be anything more opposed to what Jesus is teaching. Especially throughout the New Testament, the message rings true that children, specifically in Psalm 127, are a blessing from the Lord. And the fruit of the womb is His reward. These families that we're reading about, the closest expressions of communion that Christ could use in this circumstance, they are precious things that Christ teaches as precious things. But yet even the kingdom of God is to take priority above that. And a man's foe shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That is to say, love the kingdom of God and Christ above all else that we have in this world. There's not a more elemental, fundamental, and simple message that Christ could close with in this charge to his disciples then love the kingdom of God most. In Matthew chapter 6, he's telling us, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. I don't believe there's a better charge for us, especially as we embark on this new year, whether it be with or without resolutions, to place the kingdom of God as that which we most value and we most love and we most adore above all else, even in the midst of difficulty, trial, and persecution.